For those of you that are guests with us this morning, my name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I am glad to see you this morning to read the Bible with you um, and to together uh, trust God to help us surrender our hearts to the truthfulness of what his word has to say to us. Uh, If you've been around for a little while, uh, it probably would come as no surprise to you um, that I'm not a guy generally in conversation that's given to exaggeration. Uh, It's just not one of those things that I do. Um, I'm also not a guy that's really given to placating people. Um, That tends to make conversations between you and I sometimes relatively awkward um, because I'm just not one that really placates people very well. Um, I say that because what I'm about to say, hopefully you will hear me uh, in its truthfulness. Uh, We we believe that God's word um, is powerful for the transformation of souls. We really do believe that. We do believe what the Word says about itself, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword that's able to divide and to pierce down and separate our our thoughts and our intentions and our actions and our motivations. We really do believe that. Um, And I want to say to you this morning that we're going to come to two verses this morning. We're not going to really move beyond two verses this morning. And, And I want you to know something, that if you can grasp these two verses with your mind... And the Holy Spirit can inflame these two verses in your heart. I really do believe that whether you've been a follower of Christ for 40 years, or you're still skeptical and doubtful about who Jesus is, I believe that if you rightly understand these two verses, and the Holy Spirit inflames these verses in your heart, they will transform the trajectory of your life. I really do believe that. Um, Lots of times we, we read passages and chunks of scripture to get the idea that God is communicating that in and of itself, again, can change your life. But there are not too many dense, concise sets of verses in the Bible like these two. And I really believe, again, if we can get them with our mind and the Holy Spirit can bring them to flame in our heart, it will absolutely change the trajectory of your life. So... Please don't take that as exaggeration. I do believe it's true. And so now we're going to pray because we're going to need God to help us in this time to make that a reality um, because that's what I want for us. What I want for me, it's what I want for you. So let's pray and then we'll look at these two verses. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that again and again we say this often that you have not left us to ourselves. Um, But you have given us your Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that raised your Son Jesus from the dead, and you have given us your Word. And I ask this morning that your Spirit would open up the truthfulness of your Word uh, to our mind and to our hearts. Lord, our our hearts grow cold and and hard and and frozen so quickly. I ask this morning that you would do what only you can do, and you would break the ice that so quickly settles over our hearts. Uh, May the truthfulness of your Word this morning I become alive in our minds. May the power and the delight grow in our hearts by your spirit for the joy, for the joy that these two verses talk about that's ours. I ask this, Lord, that we would, that we would find you an exceedingly and abundant treasure for your glory and your namesake. Amen. We have been starting a journey through the book of 1 John. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up there. We're not going to go somewhere different this morning. We're going to be continuing on in our study of the book of 1 John. Uh, John uh, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, he was a follower of Christ, one of Jesus' early followers. Uh, in fact, he was one of Jesus' inner three, one of the closest three. In fact, different messages and different points in the gospel say that, G- that John was the beloved disciple. He may have been the closest friend that Jesus had in his life on this earth. And we know from Scripture, and we talked about it in the beginning of this series, uh, that John was a follower of Jesus, a close friend of Jesus. Uh, he believed in Jesus, and he was tortured for that faith. And that John suffered immensely for believing in Jesus. That at one point, he was actually exiled to an island, uh, left alone there after he had been boiled in hot oil in an effort to actually kill him. But it didn't kill him. He just suffered. And then he was left alone in an island where uh, God gave him this unbelievable vision. And he recorded that in the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation. And after suffering immensely and being deserted on that island, John was brought back to the mainland where he resumed a a pastorate over the church in Ephesus. And at this point, John is a a really old man. Uh, His life has, has gone before him. He does not have very many years left. And in his love for this church in Ephesus and his love for God's people, uh, he writes them this letter. This is, the, this is the letter and this is the direction of a, of a pastor who has seen things. Of a pastor who has known Jesus, who has touched Jesus, who has been transformed by Jesus, who has been loved by Jesus in a very real and immense way. And this is what he wants for God's people. And this is why he, he writes this letter. And what we've seen so far in just the first chapter of this letter is that John is anxious to communicate to this young church that they have a delight and a, and a joy that's found only in a deep relationship with Jesus. We said in the very beginning there are four big things John wants in this letter, and he says it really clearly. He wants them to know the joy that's found in deep and abiding fellowship with God that comes through faith in his son Jesus. He said he's writing all these things for their joy. Later, John will go on to say that he's writing what he's writing, that they may have assurance of eternal life. They may know the truth about what they believe in and have assurance it's deep and profound and robust in their soul. He also says he wants them to have confidence in the truthfulness of the message that they believed. That there would be confidence in the gospel and the truthfulness about who Jesus is and what he's done. And he also says he's writing that, that they would grow in maturity and holiness. That their lives would be transformed by the faith that they believe in. This is what he's after. And he started this letter by drawing them into the joy that's to be theirs that's found in relationship and fellowship with Jesus. He's so anxious for them to get this. I mean, these are the last words of this man who has known Jesus, who's been closest to Jesus. This is his last word to the church. He says, I want you to know the joy that's found in the fellowship that is yours with God because of Jesus. And he goes on to explain to them how this fellowship is maintained, how this fellowship is gained and and how it's maintained. And we won't rehash all of it. But he tells them some profound things that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If you're going to have this joy that's found in this fellowship with God, you've got to come to him as he is. You've got to know him for who he is. And he is light and he is not darkness. Before they begin to despair over the sin they know exists in their own life, he he brings them comfort and encouragement. He says, yes, but if you confess your sins, there's no darkness in God. He He can't relate to the darkness that's in you. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you agree with God about your sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you. This was the essence of what he's been after in chapter 1. Taste this joy. Know this joy. Live in this joy that comes from being in right fellowship with God. 
And you maintain that fellowship by walking in the light as he is in the light. By agreeing with him about your sin and by receiving the forgiveness that comes from him through faith in his son Jesus. This is what he's after. And now John's going to move on in chapter 2. And it's almost as if you can imagine that he's having this conversation in his mind, that he's encouraging them about the forgiveness that's theirs, that, that comes through faith in Jesus. And he can kind of anticipate that some people will say, well, that's great, I'm, I'm forgiven. I feel good. Life is good. I'm, I'm right with God. Now I'm just going to go on living however, however I please. And so John's going to give them another direction and warning and encouragement here in chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and I pray that we get what he has to say. Look down at chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. He doesn't want them to take advantage of the fact that Jesus has forgiven them and cleanses them. And so he says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's already unpacked the fact that if you're a follower of Christ, and you claim to have no sin, that there is no sin present in you, that you've missed it. You've missed the essence of the grace that you proclaim to have tasted. That that, that reality of, the, of, the, of the no more sin, of, of the presence of sin being gone from your life, that's not something that we will ever fully achieve until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Right now, the presence of sin is still a remaining reality in your life. John's already unpacked that. But he says there is a goal that defines your present trajectory. There is a right goal that defines the direction of your life. And here's the, here's the goal. That you not sin. Here's the goal that should be defining the trajectory of your life in Christ. You are not to sin. Do not sin. In fact, just, just listen to a, a little casual observation through the scriptures. You, they won't come up on the screen. Paul said to the church in Corinth that Jesus died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's the trajectory of your life. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for him. You live for Jesus. He told the church in Ephesus, the same church that John is writing this letter to, that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That you should be holy and blameless before him. Here's the trajectory of your life in Christ now. Holy and blameless before God. Paul also told this church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus loved the church. He, he loved you and he gave himself up for you that he might sanctify you so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that the church might be holy and without blemish. And Paul told his disciple Titus this, Titus chapter 2 verse 14. That Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for you to redeem you from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's what John says. I'm not telling you of the forgiveness and the cleansing that comes through faith in Jesus Christ that you might presume to live any way that you want. The fact that you continue to accept that forgiveness and that grace and then live however you want tells me that you don't get it at all. Here's the trajectory that God has set for his people. I'm writing this that you may not sin. Do not sin. Is that the goal that you have in your life in Christ? Is that the trajectory that you have for your life on this earth? Do you desire to grow in, in holiness 
and in spiritual maturity the way that God calls you to? Are you at peace with the sin in your heart? Are you at peace with the spiritual immaturity that your life so often displays? I know these are questions that I ask myself, not as often as I should. Because here's the thing, I think that's true of the church. I think we've become all too comfortable with the sin in our own hearts and in our own lives. I think we've made peace with our spiritual immaturity. But listen to, how, listen to Jerry Bridges. I, I love this. I was reading this book, The Pursuit of Holiness, again this week. And listen to what he says. He says, one day as I was reading the second chapter of 1 John, so where we are right now, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness and my own maturity was less than that of John's. In effect, John was saying, make it your aim not to sin. And as I thought about this, I I realized that deep within my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. Can you imagine a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? See, I think we have made peace with the sin in our hearts by changing the aim, by changing the goal, by changing the target. I think we've decided in our minds and in our hearts that the goal for our life in Christ is to not sin too much. And by changing the goal and by changing the target, we make it manageable. When we make our dealing with our own sin manageable, and when we make it manageable, we don't need Jesus. We break it down into little chunks that we think we can deal with. It's like playing sandlot football. Did you grow up playing football or or soccer in the backyard in the playground? And whenever someone would would score, whenever someone would would beat you on a pass, you'd just go and you'd move the line a little bit. Did you ever do this as a kid? Was I the only one that did this? Someone would score and I'd go back and I'd move the pine cone that was marking the goal. Nope, you missed it. You were outside. You change the, the target. You can make peace with your own shortcomings. And when we make peace with sin, we become complacent in our own maturity. I think oftentimes, I know I've been guilty of this as well, when we begin to change the target, we begin to move the goal to something other than what the Bible calls us to. We begin to equate our own spiritual maturity, our own holiness, to use the Bible's word, with with knowledge. We tend to think that someone becomes mature, and we begin to define maturity by how much someone knows. How much of the Bible they understand. How much theology they understand. How much doctrine they can talk about. And go, that person's really mature. Instead of assessing that maturity and that holiness by how much of that right knowledge has changed their life. How much of their life displays transformation because of that knowledge. How much of that grace and knowledge they can talk about so easily has transformed their life and transformed their soul. We change the target. We change the goal. We change the definition. And when we do, we make, we make sin more manageable. And our souls begin to get at peace with it. We begin to become comfortable in our own immaturity. And when we move the target, and when John's aim that we may not sin is no longer our aim and our goal in life, we fail to see the seriousness of our sin. We fail to see the seriousness of the sin that still, still resides in our, in our heart and in our, our soul. 
I'll just give you a sampling of the seriousness of this issue, just in 1 John alone. You do not have to flip that, I'll read it to you. John says in chapter 3, verse 3, that everyone who makes a practice of sinning, everyone who's characterized by their sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So one way to understand this sin that we no longer see for what it really is, is, is as lawlessness. In other words, it's your refusal to submit to, to God's rule over your life. It's a refusal to submit to God calling the shots in your life and shaping the direction and the trajectory of your life. It's insubordination. It's cosmic treason, as we've talked about it before. And is there anything, if you really stop to think about it, more treacherous and more dangerous than treason against a holy God? But that's what sin is. And when we change the target and we redefine the target, we minimize its reality and we miss its seriousness, but it's cosmic treason. And is there anything more treacherous than insubordination against the very God who created us? Sin is lawlessness. It's treason. It's serious. John also says in in chapter 3 that the reason that the Son of God, Jesus, appeared The reason he appeared on this earth and came to this earth was to destroy the works of the devil. And in fact, I'll I'll move over out of one verse outside of 1 John and and Titus chapter 2. We already read it a second ago. The Apostle Paul says that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, this is why he came and revealed himself to us, was to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so if the aim of Jesus' appearing in his life and his death, if the aim and the purpose of the cross is victory over sin for God's people and the purification of God's people and the zealousness of God's people for good works, then when we sin, we're actually disregarding the wisdom of God in the cross. Your sin is actually calling the wisdom of God in the cross foolishness. That's what sin does. When we move the target and we redefine the reality and we miss the seriousness of sin, we miss the fact that the sin in our life, in our heart, in our soul, that's borne out in our actions, is calling the wisdom of God foolishness. Our sin says to Christ, I do not regard your suffering as a sufficient incentive to keep me from what it is I'm willing and wanting to do. It's saying you may have died to prevent me from doing this, to call me away from this, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is the seriousness of our sin. Our sin insults the suffering of Christ. It insults the wisdom of God. It calls it foolishness. It's very serious. Serious. Sin left unchecked. Sin redefined. The target moved. The goal being changed Sin being tolerated and made at peace with in our soul. It's serious. It calls the wisdom of God foolishness. It insults the sufferings of Christ. And ultimately, it will rob you of the assurance that is yours. This is what John's going to say in the next few verses. We'll get into them next week. Sin made at peace in your life. A failure to see the seriousness of sin will ultimately rob you of the assurance that is yours. It will lead to the hardening of your heart. And it will open up the door to an assault on your conscience. Sin is serious. It is serious. And John says his aim in writing this is that we do not sin. 
This is the trajectory of our life in Christ. Do not sin. What's your response to your sin when you do? John said it's already foolish to say that we don't have any. To say we don't have any misses the very reality of the grace that we've tasted. So what's our response to our sin when we see it? Well, there's generally a couple normal responses to our sin. One of them is to disregard it. And this is what John is trying to keep us from. And a lot of times we see our sin, we're aware of our sin, and we tend to disregard our sin. And that happens because we fail to see the seriousness of our sin. We become at peace with it. We're content with it. We're comfortable living with the lack of joy and the lack of assurance that's to be ours. And when we recognize the sin that's in our life, we just tend to disregard it. Another way we tend to respond to the sin in our life when we begin to see it, when we fail to understand its, its seriousness, is we begin to despair over it. We recognize the sin in our life and all of a sudden we're overcome with hopelessness. We recognize our failure to, to live without sin. Our failure to be zealous for good works and we become despairing and depressed. Hopeless. Feeling as though we could never we could never earn we could never deserve the continual forgiveness of God. And we have an enemy who is prowling around seeking those who we can devour and he is a deceiver. And when we sin, oftentimes we begin to believe the lies that are whispered into our ears. You failed over and over and over again. Who are you to think that you could presume upon God again? Didn't you just confess this to him just a day ago? Do you really think he's going to forgive you? Oftentimes we find ourselves facing the reality of our sin and falling into despair to disillusionment, to depression. And disregard and despair, neither are right responses of a follower of Christ. And neither of those responses ultimately produces the maturity that John is after. You see, the motivation for maturity, for continued growth in holiness, this is where John is going. It comes from a right understanding of your sin and God's grace. It comes from a right understanding of your sin and God's grace. The more you grasp the seriousness and the magnitude of your sin, the more you'll be able to grasp the magnitude of, of God's grace. And the more you grasp the magnitude of God's grace, the more you will want to grow in your enjoyment of God's grace and the more desire you will have to put to death the sin that remains in you the more desire you'll have to lay aside, the writer of Hebrews says, all the sins that so easily entangle you. The more aware you are of the seriousness of your sin, the more aware you are of the gravity of your sin, the more aware you are of the goal of your life to not sin, the more aware you will be of the magnitude of God's grace towards your sin. The more aware you are of God's grace, the more compelled you'll be to lay aside and put to death the sin that still remains in you. This is what John is after. The only right response to your sin and the only right motivation towards your holiness to not sin is a delight in God's grace. It's not disregard for sin. It's not despair over sin. 
but it's a delight in God's grace. Look at verse 2. Or the end of verse 1. If anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is Gospel Theology 101. I mean, this is an entire year's worth of sermons, but I won't do that to you. I mean, this, this, these two verses, really the second half of verse 1 and all of verse 2, it is all we need to unpack what it means to be gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded. I mean, it could be Redemption Hill 101. This is what he's talking about. When you sin, John says, because you will, because you will, as a follower of Christ, when you sin, and you will sin, you're not, you're not to disregard your sin. You are to deal with the seriousness of your sin, but you're not to fall into despair over your sin. You're to fight your sin by delighting in the grace of God. And here's what he said. Let me just try to break it down as simple as I can for you and paint a picture of this for you and trust God's Holy Spirit to make it alive to you. That's really all I can do. What John says, first and foremost, is that in your battle against sin, the hero in the battle is Jesus. The centerpiece in your battle against sin is Jesus. Jesus Christ, John says. And just understanding that, just understanding his name, Jesus grounds this man, this centerpiece, this hero in your battle, in historical reality. His name, Jesus, grounds him as a man who walked on this earth, as a real man who lived on this earth. But more than that, his name gives you an understanding and a picture into why he was actually here. Before he was born, the angels came and said, give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. This is the hero of your battle against sin, Jesus Christ. Now, Christ was not part of his name. I don't know if you knew that or not. If you grew up in the church, you probably thought his name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. His name is actually Jesus, son of Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is actually a title. It actually means anointed one or, or Messiah. Messiah, Christ. It's, it's talking about this long-awaited promise that God had given to his people to send a deliverer, to send one who would finally redeem them once and for all from slavery and from bondage. And over the centuries, the people had conjured up this idea that that would come through this one great political hero who would, who would initiate a campaign or initiate a battle or, or initiate a movement to free Israel from occupation. And at the time here, the, the oppressor was Rome. And so God's people had this idea that God was going to send this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one who would free them from their oppression and from their, their rule over Rome and set them apart as the, his people, as God's people, answering to no one but God. They had this idea of this figure who would come and do this. And Jesus was that man, though his deliverance was much different than what they had imagined. Though they wanted deliverance from the oppression in Rome, Jesus had a deliverance that was much more significant in mind. And his victory didn't come through the sword, but it came through his own death. This is who the centerpiece of your battle is, Jesus Christ. Now listen to what John says about Jesus. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now that is a $2 word that won't earn you any points with God. But it will be absolutely transformational if you actually begin to understand it. 
Now see, when John would say this word, this word that we translate propitiation, it would immediately take the, the hearers of this letter who had an understanding of, of the Old Testament, or had the understanding of the, of the rituals and the life of the people of Israel, it would take them back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And, and they would think about walking into the courtyard of the temple and walking into the courtyard of the tabernacle and seeing the, the bloody bodies of animals strewn all over the place. To see the burned and charred remains of animals that have been brought to the temple or brought to the, to the tabernacle. That have been sacrificed for the sins of the people who had brought them. This word would take them back to see this picture. And what they would see is this overwhelming, consistent picture of what their sin deserved. That's what the sacrificial system was communicating to God's people. This is the seriousness of your sin. You can't understand the forgiveness if you don't get the seriousness. This is the seriousness of your sin. And day after day and year after year, God's people would make sacrifices for their sin. Animals would suffer and would bleed and would die for the people's sin. And over and over again, God's people would get a very vivid and real picture of the seriousness of their sin and that the wages for their sin was death. But here's the thing, all the blood and all the death and all the sacrifices. It never could forgive the people of their sin. It never could cleanse their conscience and it never could turn away God's wrath forever. That's why they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. The sacrifices of those animals could never be a propitiating sacrifice. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9 and 10 if you want to go look at that. Propitiation. A propitiating sacrifice is a sacrifice that removes the wrath of God against sinners. And the only propitiating sacrifice sufficient to remove the wrath of God from sinners was the sacrifice of God's own son, Jesus. So the ultimate problem that every single one of us faces because of the seriousness of our sin is that God's wrath is against us. He is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And light can have no fellowship with darkness. And because of God's holiness, he cannot have fellowship with the darkness. Because of our sin, every single one of us deserves the holy judgment of God, of the omnipotent God. And the ultimate good news of what John is trying to say right here is that there is a way to have the wrath of God averted. There is a way to have the holy, omnipotent, righteous wrath of God diverted from you. And God made a way for that to happen. Jesus is the propitiation for your sin. He is the sacrifice that removes the wrath of God from you for your sin. And it's important to catch that John said that Jesus is the propitiation. He is not just the propitiator. He isn't the one that offers the sacrifice for your sin. No, he is the propitiation. He is the one who offers the sacrifice, and he himself is the sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the priest would take the sacrifice in for you, and he would make the sacrifice on your behalf. John says, no, Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. He's not a propitiator. Jesus is the propitiation for your sin. God could not leave. He's not content. Let's put it this way. He's not content to leave people under his wrath. 
But he can't simply wink at our sin. And he can't simply sweep our sin under the rug. Therefore, in his love and his justice, together they conspired to make a way for sinners like you and I to be saved from God's wrath without ever compromising his holiness and his justice. And the answer that God gave for that is the death of his son, Jesus. John will actually say this in 1 John 4. We'll get to it later. In this is love. Here's love for you. You want to know the love of God? You question the love of God? You're curious about what the love of God looks like? In this is love. Not that we loved God. No, not that we loved God. But that God loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's the love of God. The sacrifice of his son in your place for your sin. The only sufficient sacrifice to remove the righteous, holy wrath of God from you. Your sin is serious. So serious that it took the death of God's own son to avert the wrath of his holiness from you. But this is what God has done in his love. This is the love of God. And the reason that Jesus could be a sufficient propitiation for your sin, a sufficient sacrifice for your sin, is because, as John said, he is the righteous one. In his life on this earth, when Jesus was born and became a man, and he lived his life day in and day out on this earth, he lived the life that you and I were created to live. He lived the life of perfect delight and submission and willingness to the purpose and will of God. He obeyed in every single way, in thought, in motivation, in word, and deed. He lived the life that we were created to live. You see, if there was any sin in Jesus, any spot or hint of sin in Jesus, in thought, in deed, in word, in action, in motivation, then he wouldn't have been a sufficient sacrifice then his sacrifice would not have been sufficient to avert the wrath of God from people. That's not the case. He was the righteous one. He lived the life that we were created to live. And then he willingly died on the cross in our place for our sin. And on that cross, for our sake, for your sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the propitiation for your sin. He substitutes himself in your place for your sin, and his death on the cross exhausted the holy and righteous wrath of God for your sin for those who place their faith in the person and work of Jesus. The foundation for your forgiveness, that you might not fall into despair when you face the sin in your life, it's Jesus. Your sin is so serious, my sin is so serious, that it cost the death of God's Son. You can't simply disregard it. You can't simply disregard your sin and, and act as though it's not what it is. You cannot become complacent with it. You can't make peace with it. It's so serious that it costs Jesus his life. But when you see it, you don't, you're not to fall into despair. You're not to be overwhelmed 
by despair. And you have to become hopeless in the face of it. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he's the propitiation for your sin. And because of that, you can realistically and hopefully fight your sin and increasingly delight in God's grace. I mean, really, there's, there's no more wonderful news in all the world than that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has endured the wrath of God in your place so that your sins would no longer be counted against you. And the righteous justice of God would be averted from you. That's what it means for Jesus to be the propitiation for your sins. And if that wasn't good enough, he, he says a couple other things. He is the propitiation for your sins, and not only your sins, but, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus' life and his death, his propitiation, it is a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the only foundation of forgiveness for anyone. And his sacrifice extends to everyone. That's what John is trying to say. It's not contained to this one little group in Asia Minor in the first century. It's for Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. It's for everyone. That's what John is trying to say. His forgiveness, his propitiating sacrifice is for anyone who receives it by faith. Jesus Christ is the propitiation not only for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world, which also means that Jesus is the only way to receive the forgiveness of God and salvation. He is the only way. There is no other way. He is not one way of many ways. He is the only propitiating sacrifice for your sins. That's what John is trying to say. But I got to, this is weeks in and of itself. John has more to say. Jesus' work doesn't stop there. I mean, if that's not enough, I mean, just, just if we could just stop and just let you think on that. I mean, if that's not good enough, that he lived in your place, he died in your place for your sins, God exhausted his holy wrath on Jesus. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that by faith you could become the righteousness of God. So that God's wrath would be averted from you through faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. That you could be reconciled to God because of Jesus. If that wasn't good enough, John said his work doesn't stop there. When you deal with your sin, when you see your sin, when you face the seriousness of your sin, John says remember that Jesus is the foundation for your forgiveness. But he's also now your advocate with the Father. It's what he's done in the past and what he's continuing to do right now. See, God's holiness, God's character, doesn't allow him, again, to just simply sweep our sin under the rug. Yet his love and his, his mercy, his mercy desperately desire to forgive us of our sin. But to simply forgive us of our sin would compromise his holiness and his justice. We talk about this all the time. And so our sin is so serious, it can't be disregarded. God's holiness demands that it be punished. And John says here, don't despair when you sin. When, when you sin. Don't fall into despair. Remember that Jesus is the foundation of your forgiveness, but when the enemy begins to whisper, you've exhausted that forgiveness. You've gone to that well one too many times. Who are you to think he's going to actually listen to you? 
Who are you to think that you can come again with the same thing? Who do you think you are? John says, remember this. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is now our advocate with the Father. And we get this picture, we get this image screwed up all the time. How much time do I have? We tend to think about this image of Jesus being our advocate with the Father like this. That God is this unmerciful, angry, uh, temperamental God waiting for us to do something so that he could rain down thunder and justice on us. And then Jesus is meek and mild and love and mercy. And he's our advocate, begging on his knees and pleading before God the Father, the great temperamental angry one in the sky, begging him to change his mind. Begging him not to pour down his justice on us in our sin. And that's not the picture at all. It's not the picture at all. It's not that God is, but the Father is justice and Jesus is love and love is trying to convince justice to actually show mercy. That's not it at all. God, the Father, is actually love and Jesus is actually justice. And Jesus, as our advocate, is telling the Father, look, you can forgive them. You can forgive them because of who I am and what I've done. You can actually show them mercy. This is what the Father delights to do. Here's the picture. Jesus is our advocate. Think, think attorney, think law, but don't, but don't get the wrong picture. Jesus is our advocate and the substance of his defense. The substance of Jesus' defense is that he has exhausted the wrath of God in our place for our sins. The substance of Jesus' defense as our advocate is his own propitiating work. That's what he brings before God. He stands before God the Father in heaven. And every time we sin, Jesus doesn't go back and make another propitiating sacrifice. He doesn't die again and again and again every time we sin. No, as our advocate, he stands before the Father and he opens up his defense. And on the bench, he lays out a picture of the cross. He lays out a picture of the thorns. He lays out a picture of his back. He opens up his hands to see the wounds. And he says, it's finished. It's finished. When Jesus pleads your case in heaven before the Father as your advocate, what he pleads are the ongoing realities and ongoing effects of his death in your place. He pleads your case not based on your own attempts at perfection, but upon the sufficiency of his own propitiation. That's the beauty of that word. This is what it means to have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for your sins. And not only yours, but he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And John's whole goal in writing this right here, just his whole goal right here, is that we do not sin. But when we do, When we do, John doesn't want us to turn into this casual disregard for our sin. He wants us to see and realize and taste and know the seriousness of our sin. It is deadly serious. And the holiness of God demands that sin not go unpunished. 
It demands that the wage for sin be death, and someone will pay for it. You will either pay for your sin eternally, or an eternal God will pay that price on your behalf, and you will receive, you will receive his forgiveness by faith. John does not want you to disregard the seriousness of your sin and become at peace with your sin. But he doesn't want you to fall into despair either. He doesn't want you to see the seriousness of your sin and become so hopeless and so despairing and, and fall to the temptations and the lies of the enemy that you can't go back again. That you're too far off. You've come to this too many times. And God's not listening anymore. No, he says, you have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for your sins. And when you sin, he presents the Father, not your effort at being perfect, but he presents the Father, the work of his sacrifice in your place for your sins. So what John wants is for you to respond to your sin, not in disregard and not in despair, but in an effort to delight in God's grace. To fight to delight in God's grace. Because when you delight in God's grace, you will begin to see your sin for what it really is. And when you see your sin for what it really is, as you're delighting in the grace of God, you see Jesus' sacrifice for what it really is. And you don't fall into despair. You're not tempted to disregard the seriousness of it. You don't dismiss it and think it doesn't offend God. Instead, you think on Jesus. You think on him as the sacrifice for your sin. That your sin is so serious that it, it costs the immensity of his suffering. And as you fight, and as you do, and as you delight in that, you see his sacrifice in your place as the ultimate demonstration of God's love to you. In this is love. Not that you love God so well, but you work so hard to love God, and that you have such great affection for God. I mean, in this is love, that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let his grace towards you then, and Jesus' sacrifice in your place, and let his grace towards you now as he, as he stands before God and he presents his own sacrifice in your place for your sin. Let it begin to warm your heart. Let it begin to warm your heart. And think on it till you begin to delight in it. Think on it till it shows you the seriousness of your sin. And think on it till you begin to, to delight in the immensity of God's grace towards your sin. The more we grasp this, the more we grasp the, the seriousness of our sin and the magnitude of God's grace, the more and more and more we'll want, we'll desire to grow in our enjoyment of God's grace the more we will live what we talk about as a gospel-centered and grace-driven, grace-driven life. This is what John is talking about. And let me say this as we wrap up. This is what the people in your life need most from you. Husbands, this is what your wife needs most from you. It's not a bigger house. It's not a better car. It's not a better retirement account your holiness. It's your pursuit of delight in God. Wives, this is what your husband needs most from you. What he needs most from you is for you to fight to delight in the grace of God. To see your sin for what it is and to see God's grace for what it is.
This is what he needs most from you. Parents, this is what your kids need most from you. They need a mom and they need a dad who they can see fight to delight in the grace of God, who live a life that's centered in the gospel, centered in the truth of Jesus Christ as the propitiation for their sins, and who live a life that's driven by the grace that comes from that. This is what your kids need from you. It's not better things. It's not more activities. What they need is this. They need your holiness. They need you fighting to delight in God's grace and setting the target accurately. This is what they need. This is what I want. This is what we want. This is what the Bible has for us. I want to encourage you, grab somebody. If you're in a community of redemption, he'll grab somebody in that community and grab your Bible and together fight to delight in God's grace. This is what we do in the, in the groups that Chris was talking about, the 3D groups. Get somebody. Grab somebody. Together, don't be content with your sin. Don't be at peace with your sin. What the world needs is, the world needs is your holiness, your delight in God's grace. They need to see Jesus being a greater treasure to you than anything else the world has to provide. Grab somebody and fight together to delight in God's grace. Don't sin, John says. When you do, don't disregard it. And don't despair over it. But learn to delight in God's grace. Let me close with one of my heroes, John Owen. He says this, Set your faith at work on Christ. Here it is. Set your faith. Set it to work. Put it into action. Don't sit casually by. Set your faith at work on Jesus. His blood is the great sovereign remedy. His blood is the great sovereign remedy. Act your faith. Set your faith. Have action to your faith. Act your faith particularly upon the death, blood, and cross of Christ. That is Jesus crucified and slain. That's the propitiation. Act your faith on Jesus. The propitiation for your sins. Live in this. Live in this. Allow this to show you the seriousness of your sin and to show you the magnitude of God's grace. Live in this and thou will die a conqueror. Through the good providence of God, you will live to see your sin dead at your feet. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your wisdom that made a way to satisfy your justice, to satisfy your holiness, and to forgive us of our sins without ever compromising anything. Jesus, thank you for being obedient to the Father's will, for living in my place, and for dying in my place for my sins. The Holy Spirit, I ask that you would make the truth of this real and alive. May we know this not only with our minds, but may this truth that you that you empower. May it bring delight and joy into our hearts. We ask this, Lord, for your name's sake and for your glory and our joy. Amen.